The video I intended to show you this morning was by the Lutheran minister and writer Nadia Bowles Weber. However, she, the title she gave it would be offensive to many of us, and so we tried to start it seven seconds into the video. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> so we're going to dispense with it. If you want to know the name of the video or where you can find it, just talk to me after church with proper ID. <laughs> Today is a Newcomer's Orientation Sunday. If you would like to know more about this congregation and Unitarian Universalism, I invite you to join me in my study when the service ends. It's located behind the sanctuary and through the double doors. You'll find in your order of service a new interim ministry feedback form. And uh, I invite you to fill it out. And uh, the red collection box is just outside the sanctuary doors. There are many lessons to be learned while sitting in the dentist's chair. This is where I found myself recently amid the whirring and whining of drills and scrapers gurgling and gasping. I was doing most of the gasping. <laughs> then my breath was cut short when the dental hygienist asked, what do you do for a living? I answered without hesitation, I'm a minister. When sharing what may be disturbing news, it is always best to get to the point. Oh, she sighed, you'll have to forgive me. See, I'm a lapsed Lutheran. I grew up in the church, but now have a problem with organized religion. Forgive you, I said, forget it. I'm not particularly fond of organized religion myself. <laughs> I tend to practice disorganized religion, which I might add, I find quite fulfilling. This disclosure led to a more comfortable conversation about spirituality, which eventually morphed into other topics that were of greater interest to both parties. I left with clean teeth. My new friend left with the Unitarian Universalist Association's website address. You've heard of the life of the party? That is rarely me. It's virtually an impossibility. Picture Stillman and I at a block party in a fashionably chic neighborhood somewhere on the East Coast. The music is playing, drinks are pouring, laughter is soaring, noshers are noshing, and a sweet plant-based burning fragrance about which this minister knows absolutely nothing <laughs> is wafting across the block from a backyard. Must be incense. <laughs> then it happens. The G DJ switches turntables, which provides a moment of silence, and I find myself replying to the question, what do you do for a living? The silence is broken by my answer. I'm a minister. And everybody runs for cover. <laughs> Some quite literally. The cacophony of relationships becomes the confessional of religion. Oh, please forgive my French, responds the questioner, referring to a string of four-letter words that preceded the question itself. Another reveler shouts, 
Forgive me if I seem like I've had too much to drink, as he swaggers his way to the bar. A few women button up their blouses a little higher. Yeah, like I would have noticed that. <laughs> no doubt about it, the death of the party has arrived. The goody-two-shoes guy was in the house to spoil an evening of good-natured decadence and debauchery. Now, what left the greatest impression on me was the frequent, even careless use of the phrase, forgive me. Forgiveness for what? For having a little fun? For drinking scotch and soda without the soda? <laughs> for peppering conversation with a few spicy adjectives? For simply being human? It is easier to ask forgiveness for little things, insignificant insinuations, trite expressions, an exaggerated faux pas, sipping and slipping, than it is to ask forgiveness for real atrocities human beings commit against each other. Two scenarios. In the first, journalist Lance Morrow sits with an academic who fought in World War II. The veteran remembers. I was a rifleman toward the end of the war, and my squad was moving out in advance of the American lines in a no man's land. We came to a small river and we captured eight Germans there. They were little more than kids, 16 or 17 years old. We had a dilemma. We were very far from our lines. We couldn't take them prisoner and bring them back to our own people. The country was too dangerous and we had our assignment and we could not let them go. What did you do, Morrow asked. We made them turn their backs and face the river. Then we went down the row and shot each one of them in the back of the head. Here's the second scenario, one that made headlines and caught the eye of a violence-drenched American public. Two men walk into a Wendy's in the New York City borough of Queens just as it is closing for the night. They go downstairs and tell the manager at gunpoint that they intend to rob the place. The burglars tie up the manager and six employees sealing their mouth with duct tape and place plastic bags over their head. Then the robbers march all seven victims into a walk-in refrigerator and shoot them one by one in the back of the head. The killers flee with $2,400. Now here we have two strikingly similar scenarios and one overriding question. In which case should the executioners be forgiven? Both, neither, one or the other? Mull this one over for a moment. Now, if you think this is where I don the cloak of the cleric and urge unconditional love to all parties involved, then this is where I say, forget it. For me, what is at the heart of the matter is the nature of evil. 
The possible answers to my question about these real-life scenarios depend on one's understanding of and encounters with evil. It probably comes as no surprise that concepts like evil and forgiveness have lost much of their substance in the popular culture, especially in liberal circles. Yet it seems to me that we are obliged to assume evil does exist since the manifestations are all around us. Ask anyone who has ever set foot on Yemen's soil or in the re-emerging ISIS caliphate or in the footprints of the abandoned Kurds. What about the killing fields of Myanmar or the street gang battle zones of Chicago where on Christmas or Halloween, a seven-year-old was shot while trick-or-treating? Indeed, it seems odd to me that there remains some doubt about the existence of evil. After the previous century of Stalin and Hitler, what more proof is needed? The unedifying record goes back to Cain and Abel, a 50% murder rate that was not promising for the later descendants of a mythical Adam and Eve. Yet even in the midst of new evidence provided by evil's latest eruptions, the most rational among us seem to treat evil as if it were an atavism, a hallucination, a superstition, a force not to be credited by civilized and educated people. But oh, where the academics and the politicians fail us, the artists and poets bring, bridge the gap and play revelry. Wake up, they plead. William James understood with a, evil with a clarity that reached beyond the unhelpful question of whether evil exists in order to seek the meaning behind it. In the varieties of religious experience, he wrote, the evil facts are a genuine portion of reality, and they may, after all, be the best key to life's significance, and possibly the only openers of our eyes to the deepest levels of truth. He goes on, the normal process of life contains moments as bad as any of those which insane melancholy is filled with. Moments in which radical evil gets its innings and takes its solid turn. Perhaps more pithily, Edgar Allan Poe sums it up thusly. Horror and fatality have been stalking abroad in all ages. Like that dim light bulb sun in Picasso's Guernica, evil's radiance is often subdued but ever-present. Now, many thoughtful people believe that evil was eradicated or at least sent toward extinction by way of the Enlightenment. But it seems to me that the Enlightenment always overrates its own mastery and therefore is compelled to play existential catch-up because it has not sufficiently appreciated evil's genius for subterranean persistence and surprise. Evil has the innate ability to turn the most enlightened endeavors into murderous nightmares. 
Let's reflect back on World War II and Wendy's, the two real-life scenarios I just discussed. In light of the nature of evil, its exposure of our deepest levels of truth, its persistence and tenacity, its stealthiness, its inevitability in human relations, its omnipresence in human capability, if this indeed is evil's nature, can either the soldiers or the robbers be forgiven? My own experiences in life suggest that one of the litmus tests of evil is whether or not it is gratuitous, whether or not it could be avoided. In the soldier's story, the killing by the captors was done as part of a larger mission to bring the Third Reich to a halt. Moreover, in the throes of war's binary them or us, our soldier could not operate as an individual. He was part of an army. That army is at life or death risk, and the soldiers cannot make narcissistic, narcissistically virtuous decisions, like releasing dangerous prisoners in a no man's land, prisoners who may end up rejoining the very forces that could later come for them. The decision to deep six the enemy was based neither upon rage or revenge, but something more practical, prevention and survival. Now hear me on this. I am not making a case for war in general or for the soldier in particular. I am a pacifist. I believe both are wrong. But does that make them evil? Well, it seems on the surface, at least, that the soldiers had to kill their prisoners. The two men in Queens did not have to rob Wendy's. Once they embarked on doing so, they did not have to execute all the restaurant's employees, did they? Actually, the Wendy's murderers had a problem. If they did not kill everyone, there would be witnesses to their crime. But if the American soldier was placed in his dilemma by a war beyond his control, the Wendy's killer chose an evil means, mass murder, in order to accomplish what would have otherwise been a merely immoral and illegal act, that is, armed robbery. Many immoral and illegal acts can be forgiven. Can the same be said of acts of evil? In such cases, some would say forgiveness, forget it, and I would be among them. Contrary to popular opinion, I just don't believe that forgiveness always benefits both the victim and the perpetrator, unless certain and unusual conditions are met. Rabbi Susan Schnur warns against a rigid, black and white, all or nothing understanding of forgiveness, saying that it makes a mockery of the complex continuum or resolution in the aftermath of a betrayal. Formulaic prayers and repetitive rituals directed to otherworldly beings not only cheapen forgiveness, they simplify forgiveness to the point of impotency. 
Rabbi Schnur then goes on to explain that there are levels or gradations of forgiveness. We may partially forgive, vengefully forgive, contingently forgive, not forgive yet reconcile. We may mourn yet not forgive, achieve understanding yet only forgive certain parts of the betrayal, become indifferent, or become detached. The old adage, forgive and forget, becomes only one of many ways to respond to betrayal. We have other choices with regard to how we live the rest of our lives in light of the transgression that has stopped us in our tracks. The choices we make about how to forgive or how much to forgive are only ours to make. Sometimes the damage of reliving the pain of grievous offenses outweighs the potential healing that may come from rehashing it. Other times we may be able to separate ourselves and the person from the offense, perhaps forgiving one but not the other. Circumstances may be such that we can confront our offender. Other times it is impossible. In situations like these, forgive and forget is simply irrelevant. Moreover, it is okay, even preferable, that our ability to forgive may change and evolve over time as we learn first to sit with our pain and then gradually release it. Our liberation, whether in response to the restorative deeds of the offender or through the self-care we lovingly offer ourselves remains in our hands. It is up to us to mold and make anew as our insights and to intuitions give way and guide us along the way. The therapist Robert Karen tells his clients, there are degrees to which you let people back into your life and degrees to which you let them back into your heart, which of course are not the same thing. To which I would add, guard your heart. When untangling the web of forgiveness, you need not become a martyr. There is no sainthood in misdirected compassion. Guard your heart. Now here's a final real life scenario. In her study of mass murder, clinical psychologist Pumla Makadeza encountered the hope of forgiveness and therefore of humanity itself in the most unlikely of persons and places. Her journey is recorded in the book, A Human Being Died Last Night, a South African story of forgiveness. The mass murderer is one Eugène de Kock, also known by the nickname Prime Evil. De Kock was the commanding officer of state-sanctioned apartheid death squads and was sentenced to 212 years sentence for crimes against humanity. In sum, he was Hannibal Lecter incarnate. Surprisingly, he was paroled in 2015. 
During the 46 hours that the author and the killer spent together, they bring us to one of the great questions of our time. What does it mean when we discover that the incarnation of evil is as frighteningly human as we are? Or to quote the author's own words, Dukak had not just, forgive, just given apartheid's murderous evil a name, he had become that evil. Now, during their encounters, Dukak made an appeal to meet with the widows of the victims of one of his murder missions. The author was amazed at his boldness. Would the widows be willing to see him? What would he say? I'm sorry I killed your husbands? Two widows, Pearl Faku and Doreen Mogaduka, surprisingly agreed to meet face to face with prime evil. What happened during that meeting turned evil on its head, revealing perhaps the only effective antivenom for healing a hopeless situation. The author describes the debriefing session she had with the widows. I was profoundly touched by him, Mrs. Faku said of her encounter with Mr. Dukak. Both women felt that Mr. Dukak had communicated to them something he felt deeply and had acknowledged their pain. One of them said, I couldn't control my tears. I could hear him, but I was overwhelmed by emotion and I was just nodding as a way of saying, I forgive you. And now comes the part that leaves this minister baffled. Mrs. Faku continued, I hope that when he sees our tears, he knows that they are tears not only for our husband, but for fears, tears for him as well. She says, I would like to hold him by the hand and show him there is a future and that he can still change. Perhaps you had to be there. Maybe it's the only way to find the holy in the hideous through experience that evokes transformation. In the spotted pattern of a tear-stained floor in a jail cell somewhere in South Africa comes a mandate for forgiveness. And this time, I can't forget it. To the glory of life.